Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm thrilled about today's guest. Uh, I've known this guy since we coached basketball against one another when our sons were 10. I think I won, though. Did I win? No, I mean, sometimes. <laughs> I, I, think we, I think you guys might have full court pressed us, but uh, no, we would coach and then we would practice in the same facility. Yes. My guest is uh, Ruben Santiago Hudson, who uh, is a, a playwright, uh, theater director, now a television director, a television show star, a supporting actor, Israel Gomez on Showtime's Billions. And um, as I say, I, I first I first got to know you when I saw how hotly competitive but loving you were coaching your son. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, you know, it was all about the kids. And I, I, I admire that about you as well. It was always about the kids. Yeah, we were somehow both wanted to win, but we didn't become assholes. That's the secret. So or we don't hid. Know, they don't know or, the secret. Or, or we hid that we were assholes. <laughs> we could be assholes to each other, but not to the kids. Not to the kids. That was the whole thing. As we were just talking before we started, uh, Ruben, um, you were saying, and, and we'll go, I want to get into your biography because your story is so inspiring. People um, constantly talk to me about the things that are against them in becoming what they want to become. And you had so much stacked against you as you've written about and um, dramatized and, and came here. But I just want to start at a little bit of a service level because before we started, you were talking about life and you said, you know, you were talking about certain actors who like LA and you said you never bought into it. And neither did I. Can you talk about why? Well, simply LA never lets me forget that I'm an actor. They, everything that I do stems from being an actor or a director or a writer. Every conversation, every restaurant I go in, whether they give me a good table or not, is whether what my status is as <laughs> yes. an actor. You know, not as an artist. In New York, they actually admire and appreciate artists, like places like Paris or Rome or something that, that would love an artist. Uh, a garbage men and, and teachers say, I love your work, and they don't say, you look good. You look good is, is the thing they said. And you're worried, because you, it happens to all of us, I think, when you're in California, when you're in L.A., it's easy to, the first couple of days, you, you, you sort of keep perspective. But the fear is that you lose your own so sense of yourself, right? Yeah, but you know, it's, it's, it's so beautiful when I'm there because I, I, I know that I'm there for a limited amount of time, so I take advantage of everything. I'm at the beach, I'm in the mountains, I'm at all my friends, you know, I'm at every restaurant, they have great restaurants, and I take advantage of that. But I know I'm leaving because before that day is over, someone's going to remind me of why I'm there and what my worth is as an actor. That's the key thing, the status piece, right? What you're worth. Yes, that you, you feel like um, a piece of merchandise almost out there. Yes. I mean, sometimes I sit at, sit at the bar, but I'm there by myself and have dinner, and people just turn their backs to me. It's hard to really meet somebody at the bar until someone comes over and says, oh, my God, I love you on blank, on whether I'm on Castle or whether I'm there shooting Devil's Advocate. Oh, I love you in boom. And then all of a sudden the backs turn to faces. Oh, my God, were you in that? Yeah, now you want to talk. Uh, I don't want to talk now. Right, because it, you come go in New York, and even where we're standing right now, I can go into four or five different bars and have a conversation with anybody, because you're there watching the game and calling somebody schmuck and you know and having a good time. Why that schmuck? You should have passed the ball, and you have a have a conversation, or you you for the Yankees or the Mets. But in L.A., I find out it, once they find once the people find out that I matter in the entertainment business, then I am someone to reckon with, other than just being a human being that's a father and a husband. Well, you're right, and and. Losing the sense of self is, I mean, your sense of self and who you are is so important in your work, I think. It's, it's the most important, I think, and the most valuable part of anything I bring to a character I play or something I write is who I am. And when I remove that, I'm just another person in the room. Yeah, I think about this all the time, point of view, right? Because that's how you find your point of view mm -hmm. as an artist is by, by, by knowing um, where you're standing and looking. Mm -hmm. And if that goes away, you're fucked. That's true. That's true. It's funny because I, like, I even notice about you guys when I'm shooting Billions. You're always on the set and you're always still working. It's not like you're just looming, looming, looming. You have your computer open and, and, and I'll pass by and I'll see script. And it's not, you know, I'm not trying to snoop or nothing, but it ain't, you know, you, it's not, you're not on Pinterest. You, you actually are writing. You're still working and listening. And, and so you never lose. Well, like you, you know, we're so connected to the work. Like we're all so lucky to do this work. So I want to talk about the luck of doing it because um, you're, the thing that, in a way, you're, it depends where you are, I guess. It's interesting, right? Because in New York theater, you're famous for one thing and on television for another thing. But 
Lackawanna Blues, which is your own story that you wrote and played as a one-man show and then became a movie that you also wrote and won a lot of awards, um, is a story that's inspired by your life, right? It is my life. It is the truth of me until I was about 18 years old. So for people who don't know, because that was even a long time ago now, and, and one of the things I hear all the time, and, and I know it's true when they say it. I got a letter today from a woman who said she had nine kids, she really wants to write. Balancing it all seems so hard, her responsibilities. And I felt for her, and I felt, I felt that to her it seemed impossible. I know she wasn't fucking around. I know to her there are moments where it seems impossible. But it was fucking impossible for you. No. So, right, okay, good. So can you just talk about the, like, you know, the odds against you getting here were long. Like, folks, can, can you just talk about your childhood and your path to becoming the artist and man you are. And you can go for as long as you want to go. Well, I'm not going to go too... Well, I'll, everything I do, as, as a friend of mine says, to make a long story longer. But uh, No, you can go. As I a kid, want to hear as it. a little kid, you know, I was born in a, in a room and house that my mother was a tenant in, my birth mother. And she was working as well as trying to maintain a life and was leaving me sleep in the room. And the landlady found me and just said, you can't leave a baby, a two-year-old boy, you know, sleep in the room. You know, so he'll stay with me while you work. And she became more of my mother than my real mother, whose life spiraled into drugs and heroin for 23 years. She's the character you write about. The woman who took me from my mother. Is the woman you write about, so, yes. Yeah, my real mother would come and get me every now and then. We'd just see the movie like Wanda Blues and you'll see. She would come and get me when she was had herself straight or was not in jail or something. And, uh, and she would be my mother for like two months. And then I'd be back with the, the woman because she would either be in, uh, in her addiction or in jail. And so that seemed difficult. But the incredible thing about it is my father, he, because I wouldn't move with him because he tried to take me with, to be with him. But he had a new wife and I was just uncomfortable there, even though she turned out to be one of the most amazing women in the entire world. Uh, I stayed at the room and house with Nanny and my father moved two doors away from us so he could see me every day. When he comes from work, he can come get me and go to baseball game or teach me how to speak Spanish or just be with me. So I had my father and I had Nanny in the host of characters that lived in her room and house that she had gotten either from uh, mental hospitals or taken off the streets with addictions and straightened them out, giving them jobs, taking them to get jobs, or family and people that she had brought from the South during the migration. So this host, these wonderful characters were around me. Most were illiterate. And I read most of their mail. You know, they couldn't read. They said, read this for me, Doc, what to say. And they called me Doc because they said I'd grow up to be a doctor because I was very smart. But yeah, I would go to school, and the people, the kids would tease me and say I was a half-breed because my father was Puerto Rican, my mother was black, and I lived in a room and house and was on the welfare. True. I did live in a room and house. True. I was on the welfare. You know, and uh, I mean, sometimes the rats would be so big in the house that uh, they would eat through the cans, like yeah. eat through a can to get to, <laughs> to the get sardines. To but... The, 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 or we would have to hang things high. But our house was like, just because we were that poor, but our house was like you could eat off the floor clean. But rats decided we don't come take their stuff, you know, so. Where where was this? Lackawanna, New York. Lackawanna. And where is Lackawanna? Next to Buffalo. Uh, I can spit to Buffalo from my house in 10 minutes from downtown Buffalo. And so you said the people around recognized that you were smart because I think this is one of the the really hard things is um, to have the sense uh of possibility for yourself when you go to school, if people are like, you said they called you half-breed, or if they didn't recognize. How did how did you start to believe, well, wait, I'm, I am smart? Those people in the room and house. They just told you. I was their hope. All the wishes and dreams that they had had and knew that were impossible, they thrust upon me. How old were you when you realized that it was all different, that you were living a life that was different from most people? Uh, about About five years old. Because at the time, Nanny, we call Nanny Rachel Crosby, the woman who, who's like one of the blues is about, had at that time four boys from different women who couldn't raise their kids, and we were all there together. And we all were being raised together. And But the other kids' mothers came to get them, and I stayed. And so through my whole life till I left to go to college, no telling who would be there month to month, week to week, year to year, who's parents couldn't raise them. So I always had other people there with me. And and is she who gave you this tremendous sense of purpose and, and self that you have? Because, I mean, that's one of the things I noticed right from when, uh, when I first met you, which was, I think, right around the time Lackawanna was happening that year, maybe the year after when you were coaching. Um, 
your sense of purpose and self in everything that you do. You don't do anything halfway. You're no. fully in. I have and to be. Were in. you always like that? Y yes, because I, I always, uh, I was always an underdog, and I'm still the underdog. So I, all I ever knew was fight. I was born on the floor. All I knew was to get up. So all I keep knowing is get up, get up, you know, try to rise, rise, rise. So, but then another woman came into my life uh, who I was very close to her kids in the sixth grade when Nanny, Nanny's room and house, I was just getting too unwieldy and about 13 years Why old. Why were you getting in trouble? Getting a lot of trouble. What kind of trouble? Wanting to be a tough guy. And, oh, so you did. You wanted to fight. You well, wanted to... People kept teasing me, so I ended up learning how to fight. And when I found out I had the power of destruction in my hands yeah. and I can intimidate people as well as take a whooping too, um, it, it just... I, I had to get more discipline in my life. So my godmother, who Nanny had christened my godmother, a name, woman named Maddie Overton and her husband, Adolph, uh, who were very who were like pillars in the community. They had car wash, liquor store. He was the first black councilman. Took me as well as my godparents. So Nanny would send me there to get disciplined. So Because she didn't want to do it. She just was too, too soft on me. She let me do anything I wanted. So, I mean... That was a turning point. That is the woman who we went to the schools and told them when they had me in regular classes uh, that he should be in advanced class. And they would say, no, well, he's a room and house kid on the web. And they were like, she said, Put, give him any tests you want to give him. He's as smart as any kid in here or smarter. How old were you when that happened? That was seventh grade. So you're in seventh grade. And the other do the other kids recognize, are you a leader amongst the kids by then? Had you no. still weren't? You were no, still I, getting shot on by I was people. a little guy. They caught My nickname was Little. Right. So they would... You know, the bullies could bully me until they found out that they thought I was a little crazy because I would hit them with stuff or chase yeah, sure. you home. So they quit hitting me. They said, quit, leave him alone because he'll chase you home and stand outside your house all night. Yes, true crazy is scary. Yeah. If you can present true crazy. But I had crazy. to at least act that way to, to stop yes. getting bullied. But uh, did any of the teachers recognize it? Did yeah, any of them know? Of, you know? You know, a teacher in the fifth grade when I was with my mother, my real mother, her name was Aileen Hudson. Yes. Uh, she had cleaned her life up and taking me in for about two years. And I went to school in Buffalo proper, not Lackawanna. And there was a teacher there that recognized in the second grade because I could read very good. I was an advanced reader. She put me in a play. And um, that's when I started this thing, enjoying acting. And then she was also my teacher in the fifth grade. But she did an interesting thing. She called the social services because she followed me home a couple of times and saw that my real mother was starting to not home, that I would come home and I'd be the only kid there. Yeah. So social services came to get me, to, to, to evaluate me and see if they could take me. But by that time, I was with Nanny. I had left the house where my mother was. I didn't see her for a couple of weeks. And I went to Lackawanna. Nanny said, get in the cab. I'll pay for it when you get here. And so in, in, in Lackawanna Blues, when my mother comes to get me with the car and the guy, that's that scene. And Nanny said, he's not going anywhere else until you get yourself together and you can do him better than me. So treat him, you know, and give him a better life than I can, even though it's a rooming house. And you were listening to all this. I, I heard it. I was sitting there. I I'm cried. Saying you were listened. a part of all of it. Yeah, I'd go in the room and cry, you know, because, but when the welfare people, but Mrs., her name was Mrs., uh, her name was Miss Patton and her name became Mrs. Nowak. I've, I've been looking for her. You know, I'd love to find her because I teacher. know she sees my success. But she, in, out of a good thing, Wanted to give me a different life. Say her full name again. Her name was uh, her name was Mrs. Miss Patton, and she married a guy named Nowak, and her name became Mrs. Nowak in the sixth grade, fifth grade. In Buffalo. So if anybody who's listening in Buffalo, New York, has any info from school sixteen, she was teaching school sixteen. But dig this though. So she became when she found out that I actually loved my life. I loved this room and house. It was like it was like Barnum and Bailey it was like the funniest people in the world and the most loving. And she and Nanny became friends. And Nanny would let me go to her house. She had a country house in Eden, New York, and to plant trees. I'd never planted a tree. I'd planted tomatoes, planted peppers, but plant trees. And she said, 20 years from now, Ruben, you come back, and this will be a really real tree. It's your tree. And so Nanny would let me go to her house where she had a husband and a daughter in a, in a real house. Sure. And I have a scene in, in Lackawanna Blues, and I say, wouldn't you like a house with a yard? And I said, Uncle Bill has a yard. You know, but he was fixing cars in his yard. But and Mrs. Nowak wanted to show me, and Nanny wanted me to see what a regular life was. And were you aware you were getting these lessons at the time? Because even when you talk, describe the people in the rooming house now, there's a romance to it. But it couldn't have felt very romantic to you living it because yeah. it was your life. It was romantic until people teased me about it because it was fun because I was so safe there. 
when I came in that door, whether I had a black eye or or or, or just was well, a math book, it was like, hey, doctor, you know, come on over here. Let me tell you, and he solved <laughs> this problem. Go look in your encyclopedia. I said, now river longer than the Mississippi. You you solve this, and I give you fifty cent. And I would go in my encyclopedias, and I would tell them the facts, and then I'd get fifty cents. Amazing. Yeah, that is magical, yeah, right? So, so then, and then you end up honoring all these people. You should well, see the one man show. The one man show. I always wanted I to see the one man well, show. Well, it's coming back. I'm trying to get Broadway I'll, producers, but it's coming back. I'll be there. I'll be there opening night, man. I, you know, knowing you, I mean, I'll cry through the whole thing. Uh, and so, when did you start? I know you did a play in second grade. When did you start begin to sort of live in your imagination a little bit and start thinking about the world as an artist? It was college when when it, the reality came that I could make a living doing it. So were you a story writer when you were young or not? Like when you I, were in high school, what would if I would have said, oh, you're going to be a success? What would success have meant to you? I was more an improv guy. What I thought in high school is, is that maybe I could find my way on the basketball court somewhere. So I went to college and played little ball, got kicked off the team because of my temper. Uh, didn't even really get to the first game. Um, Where'd you go to college? Binghamton University right. uh, initially. Then that's for my bachelor's. Then I got my master's in Detroit at Wayne uh, and later on a doctorate. But... I think it was my, I was getting in a lot of trouble and I started losing things. I kicked off the basketball team, got kicked off the radio station. I was a disc jockey, very popular. And um, uh, I had nothing. And Nanny had gotten cancer and had a mastectomy. I had had my second child. I was 19 years old. And my world fell apart. I got kicked out of school. I was put on probation. They said, you got to go for at least a semester. And people pulled me under, under and they said, this is your last shot. You're too smart. You got too much going for you. You got two kids. You need to either figure out you're going to be a man or continue acting like a kid. And they gave me a chance. They let me go to another school for one semester. Like to, a junior college for a semester? No, no. Buffalo State College. Right. Very good school, teacher's college, for a semester to prove myself. And Lofton Mitchell, who wrote Bubbling Brown Sugar, Land Beyond uh, 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 the River Star of the Morning, great writer, uh, became a mentor and he said to me, if you just forget about this basketball and forget about this radio, act, just only act for a year and watch what happens. It's going to take you places you never imagined. He said that to you? Said it. How, did he, first see, how did he first see you work? Because the, the White Theater, which was the Binghamton Theater, wouldn't give me a lead role. So I started directing and acting in my own stuff, uh, particularly uh, started out doing like... Um, uh, just black plays, things that I had written with other black actors. You mean at Binghamton or at Buffalo State? Where is this? Binghamton. Doing this? Before at Binghamton. I got kicked out. Okay. And um, people started recognizing the talent, but still I didn't get any leads. My son Trey is on his fourth lead. I got one lead. He's a terrific actor, Trey. I got one. Uh, anyway, so I'm mad. I'm jealous. He's a college he, senior, right? He graduates. He getting yeah. ready. I'm going to see him this week in, uh, in uh, yep. David Ives' The Liar. Fantastic. But um, anyway, so I said, okay. I'm going to prove myself. And I came back and I let everything else go. I quit fighting. I quit chasing a whole bunch of girls. I still chase some. I'm a college boy. But I didn't chase every girl. Right. That's a big difference. So Big distinction. I started, you know, I, I, I directed and, and starred in a play called Sizwe Bonzi is Dead. I had a 16-page monologue to come out. And then I flipped into another character. And from that moment on, it was like, this is the cat, you know. And, and it flipped. This is who I am. And then people recognized you for who you were. They said, you know, you, what do you want to do? You right. Do that was it. That changed. But, but by that time, I was doing little stuff with the black students. I wasn't in the theater department. I was doing stuff at the fashion shows, at the Black Student Union rally, you know, that kind of thing. I want to just, I want to ask it like, um, because when you say it, okay, so this guy said the thing to me, so I decided to put all that aside and, and change. That kind of change is very, very fucking hard to do. I didn't have a choice. Because, so like, you know, I, I know I should change and uh, only eat um, lean protein, but put a slice of pizza in front of me, I'm going to eat it. So you had to. How did, what convinced you? And what happened inside you that enabled well, you to make that change, it, it to shift? It wasn't easy. Well, the first thing is when I looked at Nanny in that hospital bed Fuck. when that cancer was on her, and she started getting little when her hair turned gray, and I said, I'm going to lose her. And I would never have done anything to make her proud of me. So that's huge. So I want to make her proud of me. I, I'm not going to cry on this podcast. So then I looked at these two little babies I had, you know, by two different women. And they needed me. And I just said, and Lofton has said, this thing is your way out. And I said, well, I'm going to live, eat, and sleep this and see, do I, am I really what they say I am? 
and it just opened up. Everything I started working at a regional theater company and made my first dollar at the Cider Mill Playhouse in the regional theater. So they wanted me to do theater there, and I wasn't supposed to make money as a student. And then I started just working on the radio station doing commercials, you know, like you know, the Mastin Floral Shop. Sure, of course. Oh, well, you're a good voice, yeah. 50 cents. $50 and then it just here. started working. And did you, uh, you obviously weren't really ready to be a dad at that point. You know, you're a, you're uh, a real, you're two children that you have now who are like my kid's age, you're super involved with yeah i waited till i was i was waited till i can afford the sneakers they i'm needed. saying they're <laughs> them, braces for the no team. yeah you're like a, a super involved father you know every move that they make yes. and you're um you know i've seen it you're a great dad uh and it's obviously like a focus like you made a decision about the kind of father that you wanted to be yes the kind of father who could pay for college for their kid all yes. all that stuff right but what was it like the first go around did you it figure was, it out obviously the legacy of what happened to you was uh, I'll tell you something. I, 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 I like to think I was a good father even to the, the ones when I was 19 because I, I really grew up. You tried. And everything they needed. And, and I didn't always do things to get it that I, I'm proud of. But I got them everything they needed. I mean, to the detriment, to things that haunt me now that I had to do. And I won't even talk about no, them because I'm ashamed of them. Yeah, no, but I did those things to make sure they had. And I always supplied from whether they needed food or sneakers. But I, if you need, they need, you know, one of, one of my sons needed braces on his legs. So I had to literally go downtown to get him public assistance. And the only way I could get it is I had to sign my name. And when I signed my name on this line that everybody begged me, don't sign your name, they handed me a, a bill before I left social services for $12,500. And the judge said, if you miss payments, I'll put you in jail on the weekends and you will work during the week. And I never missed payments. Of course you did. And I walked in and said, I'm going to pay this one day, I told the judge, because that hurt me. I said, I love my kids. And I said, I'm going to pay this in one payment. And I was on soap operas here in New York for about three years, another world. And I walked in and I said, and if you take the interest off, I'll pay it right now. And I wrote a check for $18,000 and I paid it all in one hit. That must have just felt unbelievable. Yeah, but it drained me. <laughs> I didn't have any more money. That was my whole side. I think I saved twenty grand. So you know, but that was that was it. But I paid it. Right. You were determined to do it, and you. Were, so you came into the city and and started to get work. How old are no, you then? I came into the city sleeping on the floor. That was nineteen eighty three, May of nineteen eighty three. I left Detroit, where I was. I had my own theater company, and I was the star in Detroit. I could do anything I wanted, whenever I wanted, wherever I wanted. I wasn't making any money. Yeah, but you had a life that was like you were living a life the way that you wanted. Well, I, I was I was the star there, but it was the star didn't pay in Detroit. So I came to I came to New York with a promise of a job that wasn't here when I got here. So I started sleeping on the floor. What kind of job? An acting job in a in a tour, but the the writer decided he wanted to do the tour, so I was out of a job. So I started scraping, and my goal was to get in the soldiers play at the Negro Ensemble Company. But they said no because my name was Santiago and there was no Puerto Rican Rose. So I added Hudson. Which is your mother's name. My mother's name. Ruben Santiago Hudson. And it kind of made them give me an opportunity to uh, come in in, in December. Yeah, of I, I, was I read about this, that yeah. you did that and that, and that, in fact, you weren't black enough. So you were kind of, in, in their minds, you weren't black enough. I was a tweeny in between. But now that's like, you know, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was being a part of the Negro Ensemble Company with, under Douglas Turner Ward. That you once you got in and you were able to do it because he took me off the road and took me to New York to my first off Broadway production of uh, Ceremonies and Dark Old Men, the 25th anniversary, which is the the the, the play that Spike Lee saw Tracy Camilla Johns. And wow! Before in, before she's got a hat to put her into, she's got a hat. That's what he and he was putting me in the film as well as Greer Childs. You were gonna play Greer? No, he asked me, and it was too much nudity. I had these two little boys, and I didn't want my first film to be my first thing frontal nudity. I said. I can't do it. It's too much nudity. If you cut back, and he said, I'm not cutting back. And so I didn't do that. And he still, to this day, I haven't worked with him. He's still angry with you. I don't know if he's angry, but I have not worked with him. How can Ruben Santiago Hudson be? Now, this ain't about ego. Just, just what I have achieved. I've done 37 movies, 57 guest stars, 28 television pilots. And I don't work in one Spike Lee film, and he, all he makes is New York films? Well, he, here's what I'll say. Spike's very particular. He's a particular guy. Yes. Like and so you could see where he felt. First of all, you don't want to be folding those clothes like Greer Barnes anyway. You know, Greer's the one who when he takes Greer Child. Greer Child. Yeah, but Greer Childs when he he oh I could have played. He's the one. Him. He's the one. He folds the clothes really neatly before he's yes. going to sleep with he's her. He's full of himself. Yeah, he's super full of himself. He's super ripped. Yeah. I'm sure you were ripped back then. Oh, in '83, I had it. 
I had what I had. I, I might not have what this young boy has now. But but I'll say this: Spike follows on Twitter like twenty people in the world. You know, he's got four hundred thousand followers. He he, fo we, he follows me on Twitter. I've known him for since nineteen eighty six. He, the first week I had this podcast, he said he'd come on. It's four or five years later. Nothing. He'll come. No, I, I he's love very. Spike's I love world. him. No, no, no. You, he and I coached little league together. With we were the on the same. Yeah, we our sons played on the same team. I brought him in. <laughs> he came to me and he was like, "I, I want to play little league. I don't know where to go." And Spike for his son, and I was like, "You'll come play with me and Sammy." And so for two years, Spike and I coached the same little league team. But is he on this podcast? He'll no, come. he's not come here. On, come on, Spike. Um, so Spike and Spike and you meet back down. He offers you a part. You don't Literally, want to take. I, I it. mean, we talk about eighty. We talk about eighty four. No, and he wasn't famous yet. He'd only done we, uh, Joe's Bed Stuy. We cut heads. Spike wasn't a famous, famous director. Or not, yet. somebody offers you a film. I had never. No one offered me anything. He's standing outside of Theater Four on Fifty Fifth Street. And, and he says, hey, man, I got a film. And I see this little guy there, and I'm like, I'm like, I hugs him. I say, thank you, man. Let me read it. And I just was saying, I can't. So I talked to my, my godmother, and I said, it's, I, I'm a little ashamed. I don't want my kids. And Adolf Caesar, who I was doing Soldiers Play with in 83, said to me, film is forever. And it scared me. And I said, I don't want my penis in a film, and my little kids are going to see it. Unless uh, I just felt awkward, and so I didn't do it. Could you tell that it was great? Could you tell the writing was oh, great? Oh, it, it was dynamite. It was down, but just the story and the premise and this, this, this is before the w women's empowerment thing. And I said, this powerful woman, and he, and, um, no, it's one of five, I don't want, I want to stay with you, but it's one of five films that changed my life. So that if I, if, if someone asked me the five films that changed my life, that was really one of them. So, uh, I, I would have loved to have, I would have loved to have seen you in it. So you don't say that. What, what, what was the first big break? Like, what was the first thing where, you came, you came here, you're living on the floor, and what do you do? You get here, well, there's no the, job. The Can you take us through it? Like, what do you do? The first, I slept there, and I, and I auditioned, auditioned. Actually, right over here. We might be in this building uh, that we're in right now. Oh, the theater's like one block away. It was, yeah. uh, no, it was a children's theater called uh, Theater Works. And I get this job making, like I think, 130 a week uh, doing Jackie Robinson in a play called Play to Win. But before we could start the, the school tour, we're talking about now... Uh, I came in May. We talking about in the summer, June, July. I get I get a regional theater production of a play called It's Showdown Time, which is a black taming of the shrew, and they're doing it over at Crossroads Theater in New Jersey, in New Brunswick. So I take I go over there, take my clothes out of the place I was living in, put them in the basement of a buddy of mine's in the Bronx, and by December of of uh, um, of, of eighty three, they call me and I booked Soldiers Play. So I went on a year tour, so I didn't have to pay rent. I just saved my money to try to get a lease. How did you get that? How did you start getting that work? What was the process? Were you knocking well, on doors? Did you have friends because of the Detroit, because you had a theater company in no. Detroit? How did you begin to manifest this for well, yourself? Well, I, I was always a fierce audition. I can audition. And I knew I could sell, you know. So I went to the NEC, and, and, and I didn't have an appointment till the end if they had enough time. So when Douglas Turner Ward, the artistic director, came out to go to the bathroom, I started a monologue. And you he, did. He you did. In, the, in the waiting room, you yeah, started a monologue. From home. I ever tell you about the time I learned how to speak Indian? Well, back in Crossroad, there was a light-skinned color man told everybody he was a Cherokee Indian, couldn't speak no English. He was a drifter, took up with Lottie Bell McCoy over in the hollow. Oh, Pete McCoy's sister, how they ever got together, only the Lord knows. And one day we was down at the bay, and I go to this monologue. You just start doing that. I start. And what does he fucking do? He I says, well, 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 when, 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 what's your name? I said, my name is Ruben Hudson. He says, uh, when, 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 if I'm done, when I'm done, I got any time, you, you come on in. And I came in. And he, and this is the, this, this is a good story here. I'm going to make it short. You don't have I'm to. At, I'm at Macy's basement. In the basement, going to catch the path train to Jersey City because I didn't have any money. And a friend of mine had an apartment over there and she was going to feed me and I could sleep on her couch. So, I had a beeper then. We didn't have cell phones. And the beeper goes off, call your, your, your answer service. I call the answer service, call your manager. I call my manager. He said, good news and bad news. I said, what is it? He said, what do you want first? I said, the good news. He said, you just got cast in Soldiers Play. I'm like, yeah. He said, I said, what's the bad news? He says, you're the understudy. I said, well, what am I playing? He said, you're the understudy. For the whole show. For everybody. And I, and I stopped, and I couldn't speak for a little while. And I said, I, I, can't, I can't do it if I don't go on stage. And I said, I'll play any role, the messenger. I'll do anything. And he said, well, this is what they offered you. I said, he, and we went back and forth. He said, how much money you got in your pocket? I said, like $3 and a quarter or something. Yeah, I said, I'm on my way to Jersey to eat. And he says, well, they're offering three twenty-five dollars per diem and three forty-five dollars salary. I had never made that much money to, 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 to act. 
and you had to go on the road. They're offering you $345 a week. And $325 per diem. Per diem for food. $700. So I was like, wow, uh, I can't do it. And he said, be careful now because I'm going to tell them and it's going to be their decision. They said, okay, and gave me a role. But I still understudied three people and I played all those roles during the tour. Okay, so how, how did you know? You knew yourself well enough to know it'll eat me up. I'll be an asshole. I'll turn into, I won't do myself any credit because I'll be bitter. But you have to remember. This is crucial, But you have to remember, this is crucial. I came out of Detroit where I was the, I did Pearly. I did Big Eyed Buddy Lomax. I did uh, the Fantastics. I played the boy in that. I did, uh, um, I starred in Wine in the Wilderness. I starred in Home. I starred in everything. And all of a sudden, I can't get on stage. All I wanted to do was act. That's all. Yeah. That that's sort of like on 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 one level it's a, it's simple, but on the other level, eleven out of twelve people don't have the courage to say no in that spot. I I always say, becoming an artist requires you to say no to things you wouldn't believe you'd say no to. Like you have to say no to going out. You have to say no to a certain kind of study. You have to say no over and over again. I think you have to make sacrifices, or you'll never really. So you somehow found a way to say no, even though you said you had three dollars in your pocket. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't arrogant. It wasn't ego, and it wasn't necessarily brave. It was ne- necessary. I I knew that I would not be able to sustain that. So they gave me a role, and the and the two guys that were laughing when I initially went to NEC, who was just sitting on the stairs, they were taking the lights down because the soldiers' play was had just left for national tour. This was May of '83. Uh, they laughed at me when I went in to try to see if I can get an audition because nobody was auditioning. When I got to the Cincinnati Playhouse in January, they were adjusting the lights, you know, the road guys. Sure, too. of course. And they looked down off the ladder. Vess Weaver, good dude, man. Great cat in Philly. He looked down at me and said, yo, you the Puerto Rican that walked into this? <laughs> I said, yeah. And uh, that is we became fan- good friends. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, that, and that's where I met Denzel. That's where I met Sam Jackson. That's where I met James Pickens. You mean Tor... You mean all touring together? They were originally in Soldier's Play. With you? No, I know they were in the Soldier's Story. Not, no, the play. Yes. They originated in the oh, play. Oh, no, I know that they did, I'm, but I didn't realize you were all in it together. No, I wasn't in it with them, but they had heard about me. This this little curly-head dude from uh, from Detroit came in, and he's taking so-and-so's role now. You know, he's a little bold little guy. And Adolph Caesar, who played the sergeant, you know, if he approved of you, you were in, and he approved of me. All right, I have one question for all of the I'm going to listen to a podcast to help me fall asleep people. Are you struggling to get some shut-eye? I hate when I'm struggling to get shut-eye. I hate it when I can't fall asleep. Listen, if you answered yes, you're in luck because we have a great tip for how you can zonk out more easily. Mattress Firm, America's neighborhood mattress store, lets your budget stretch further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. They are more than mattress experts. They have the whole package it helps you transform your mattress into a bed from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you covered, literally and figuratively. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening right now as I read this sentence to you. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Look, I value my sleep because uh, I have limited time I'm a writer, primarily, a storyteller. And if I am sleepy, if I haven't gotten enough sleep, I find it really hard to stay focused and concentrate. But when I have a good night's sleep, it becomes much, much easier. Again, go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to learn how your sleeping could be monumentally improved. Hey, everybody. So the people who put out the podcast are doing a survey, and I would love it if you would participate. Uh, because they want to and we want to know something about you. Like, we know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast that you did, but we don't know anything about you. I mean, actually, I know a lot about you because you guys write me, but they don't really know, and it would be super helpful um, if they knew a little bit more about who's listening. So if you have two minutes and they've timed it out, it really does only take two minutes, help us out by filling this thing out. Just go to listenerq.com 
dot com forward slash moment and take the short survey. That's L I S T E N E R Q, like listener question, listener Q dot com forward slash moment, short survey. You can also give direct feedback on the show, which we'd love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a hundred dollar Amazon gift certificate. It's two minutes. Uh, the real thank you is from me, though. So, yeah, the Amazon thing, I hope you win it, but um, I would just appreciate if you would do it. So, thanks a lot. ListenerQ.com forward slash moment. So, you said when you were at Binghamton at first, you couldn't be in the plays that the white kids got the roles. They never gave me the roles. And so, do you feel that race uh, had a big effect in the beginning of your uh, career? I don't know how big, but definitely an effect. Uh, I was told things that, 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 that are shameful to tell anybody. Like one teacher told, the reason I went to the Hillberry Classical Repertory Theater, which is in Detroit at Wayne State, was because it was the only classical repertory theater that's a graduate school in the nation at the time. And I was told by one of my teachers that I can't do Shakespeare because my lips were too big. So I said, okay, I'm approved that these lips can work in Shakespeare. I went to the Hillberry in Detroit and didn't get one role. So I decided to, that I was going to leave. And this other black uh, uh, actor who was working on his doctorate named Dr. Vaughn Washington, he was just Vaughn at the time, snatched me and said, you can't walk out of this master's degree. Let me go talk to them because you don't know how to talk to white people and they're mad at you. So let me find out what we can do together. He ran the black theater undergrad program. So he said, okay, what do you want to do? And, I'm, and on, a, on a moment's notice, I said, uh, native son. So he went back and talked to Leonard Leone, who was running the, the, the graduate program, and he said he's going to loan you to the Black Theater to do Native Son, but we have to do it in this theater called the Bonstale that's shuttered, been shuttered and closed for two years. We have to open you it You just up, have to open this theater open it back to up. do this the, show the, the, as the Black the, Theater. The most amazing theater in the city of Detroit, the Bonstale Theater. It is a theater with a dome. It's incredible. So we cleaned it up, we opened it up, and we did Native Son and broke all the records there. And when he said you didn't know how to talk to white people, what did he mean? Because I was saying, you know, you got to remember, I'm, I'm 20 years old, uh, 21, and I'm like, I'm not doing this shit. I'm not carrying another rug. I'm not fanning another queen. I'm not putting on another loincloth. I'm not being another bystander. I just came from doing this play, that play, that play. And for the last nine months, I've been a slave. I've been a ruffian. I've been a bystander, man in the crowd. I'm an, enough. I'm getting on the Greyhound bus. I'm going back to Lackawanna. And, they, and that's how I was talking, opposed to now I would say I'm a little sensitive to that. That's you know, the language. It's, it's, difficult. Would... it's difficult for me to, to really, uh, I don't feel good about this, and I'm very sensitive to just playing uh, the limitations that, that you're placing on me. Right. You, you hadn't yet thought about... Diplomacy. Having to be... Paris Barkley once told me that being uh, a black man in the entertainment business, you have to be five different people. Well, I'm going to be about three. That's fine. But he, sa he said, you know, you have to be willing. Well, he's a director, too, like you are. And he was saying you just have to be able to be all sorts of different. Oh, and he was a, he was, he's a gay man. So I know that was one of, he, I that was one of his identities that he was telling me. Like, I have to live in five different identities. And um, he was like, you can't understand it, being a white man. I, no. So one of the first times someone said that to me, and I knew it was true. I knew instantly it was true. You don't have to understand it. You just, you, but you, you, should be, you, you should be compassionate. To it, but 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 the thing is this, man. Even when I say to somebody I'm sensitive to something and it's a little difficult for me, and I don't know if I can do this, that means fuck you. I'm not doing it. Where before, when I was younger, when straight up just just fuck you, I ain't doing it. But then I had to understand, okay, where's the salvation? How can I save that person's ego and my own? And he'll understand the language when because if you come back at me again on it, and I shake my head and said I don't I don't think I can do that. Sure. Which absolutely means I'm not doing it. We have never had that on, on, on your show because you always give me this great stuff and it has integrity. My character has integrity. Whether you well, like it was written not, for you. I mean, you know, it was written for you. So, well, he, yeah. he has tremendous integrity even though what he, he's a, everybody's a schemer, but that's what makes drama. Well, yeah, on our but, show, on our show um, everybody's gray. There's no good and evil. Everybody but, exists but in, the, the, in between. Um, but as long as a character can understand their reason, their intention, also you're a loyal friend on the show. But, all, but so that's you know what I mean. Being a loyal friend counts for something. And I make and I'm and there's I'm, dignity. And I'm not in that. stupid, you know. Like he, if he tries to get me to do something, I say I can't do that. I no, can't go to my people right. and do that. No, no, yeah, of course. Well, they, I mean, as you know, I mean, this is a great thing. You've been on all three seasons of the show, and you we always make sure if you're coming in, you have something real to do, something meaningful to do. And I remember when we wrote the part, thinking, I think. 
if they tell Ruben it's the guy that he play, coached hoops with, I think he'll come. That's what happened. You know, I turned it down. Yeah, because it was just a one role, a one scene part at first. Well, no, I didn't even read it. I just was I was writing something. I had a writer's deadline, and I said I don't need to leave the house. You know, for I just can't. You know, and so my agent said, "Call me back again." He said, "This guy is his name Brian Copeland." He said, "You played um, ba- you coached basketball with him." I said. Oh, yeah. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me my number. Give me my number. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No. And then it, all, it, it happened. I had this feeling. But but uh, I will say it seems now you're in a place where people aren't going to call you to without understanding. They're going to they're going to have you come and do the thing you do. Characters with uh, intelligence. If they and know me. Everybody does know me like you know me. Integrity. I mean, some people come to me. And they and and I and I just have to say I can't <laughs> just tell my agent I, I didn't respond to it. You know, you you've heard that language of course from actors all the time. I didn't respond to it. I mean, they're not going to do it. They yeah, the other day, it. an actor who I don't know, unfortunately, who wanted to be on the show, but it was a suddenly they said, um, "Oh no, no, he's too busy getting ready to do the play." And I was like, "Well, the play starts in two months. It's, he's not too busy getting ready to do the play. He just doesn't want to do the show. It's fine, but he's lying." Yes, people lie way too much in this business. I, I refuse to do it. So I wrote down this question, and you started to answer it, but I wrote it down, which was, how did you really learn to advocate for yourself and to get people on your side? Because it is a real skill. So that guy said the thing to you. You don't know how to talk to these people. But it seems like you have a, an ability, and maybe it's because the way you were raised, you had to learn so much for yourself. But it does seem like when someone says something wise in your presence, you're able to grab onto it and change quickly. Why, how do you think that is? I don't. I don't really get there. If somebody says something wise in my presence, so what? What do you mean? What? what do you well, mean? like this guy said to you. Uh, well, the, first of all, those people said you were smart, and you were like, "Oh yeah, I must be." But this guy said, "You don't know how to talk to white people. Um, let me go talk to him." And then it seems to me, as you just said, now you understand how to talk. Well, so I how just, did you learn how to do up, that? I just. I grew up. I just understood. You know, everybody. Everybody's ego has to be salvaged somehow or another. Don't destroy people. So instead, before I, you know, me being my real me. My truthful me was destroying other people's truthful them. So uh, I don't bow down to anyone. You know, I'd rather, you know, I tell somebody said something to me the other day about a directing job, and they were, they were like, well, he's going to make you do this, and this is the way it's going to be. I said, no, we'll collaborate. I want to I make sure I serve, serve the, the, the writer and I serve the script and the show, but I don't want to be made to do anything. I want to come to the right conclusion for the show, but I will follow the rules. No, 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 I'm telling you right now, if he comes in and tells you, that's what he tells all the, all the other directors, you can do it, you're going to do it. And I said to this person uh, who was a producer, there, I said, let me tell you this, either I'm there or I'm somewhere else. That's just the bottom line. I have a marketable product that I sell, which is my talent. And, and I do something that a lot of people don't do. I go into a dark room and I create product. I can write a, give me the money and the time or no money and just the time, I will give you a script. Everybody can't do what we do. So I know my worth. So I don't mind collaborating with anybody, any star, anyone, but I don't like to be made. I'm your boss and shut up and do this. That just is not me. That's why I don't, didn't direct. It took me a long time to direct television because I just don't want to be a cog in the machine. I want to have a little bit of my vision there. It doesn't have to be all of my vision. And that's why my next thing is to direct feature films. So now I've been offered feature film. Well, I think it's important to say you're a, a one of the top theater directors in New York. You're known as that. You're a, one of the great theater directors. You're one of the top theater directors. Yeah, Maybe I'm not the top there. three, but you're in the top ten. Depending on who's, who's some people estimate, estimate depending on who's, yes. I'm up there. But yeah. I'm saying you're a real theater director. Yes, you have your, you know, you, you um, are someone who can work as a director, maybe not whenever you want as a theater director, but pretty much whenever you want. Yeah. And uh, how did you decide to write Lackawanna? Like, what happened? Where were you in your life and career when you decided, okay, now I have to write the thing that's going to take me to the next level? This very interesting thing happened in my life. I, I, uh, I always told people about this woman because she passed away in, in 89. And I just never wanted her to, to disappear in people's minds. Did she get to see you on television? Yes, soap operas. That's fantastic, though. That's great. Yeah, she used to go crazy about it. But uh, anyway, and uh, she saw me on stage many times. She actually produced one of my plays. Great. But anyway, uh, I'm telling stories, telling stories to these people at the public theater when George Wolf was running the public theater, and uh, John Diaz, uh, who runs Two River Theater in New Jersey now, is one of my greatest friends and allies. Said we got to go talk to George about this. I said George has heard these stories. He said, but but it's a play, Ruben. It's a play. So go, let's go talk to George. So we're talking to George, and he said, George, I heard all them stories. Somebody needs to write them down. And I said, well, who are we going to get? He said, you. He said, now I'm busy. I got another meeting. And, and I leave. 
uh, and I get a commission about a week later. This, like, I think, I don't know, $2,500. You, the public theater's commissioning you to write this play about your life. And so George calls me, what do you need? What do you need? I said, uh, uh, he said, I'll tell you what you need. You need a room, you need a light, you need some pens, and you need some pads. Wow. So I went in a room with a recorder, and I started recording, uh, remembering everything in my life and recording it. Then I would write it down. So then they hired a woman to type it for me because my writing was so ugly. A Columbia University graduate student. This is deep. But she would correct all the way that I spoke. Oh, no, she would correct the dialect? So I would say, like my Uncle Bill would speak like this. Heard them fool got drunk, cut each other's throat last night. Heard them fool got drunk, cut each other's throat. And she would say, I heard that those fools had gotten drunk and cut one another's throats last night. And so I would be like, no, the rhythm ain't there. So I started typing it. But once I got a monologue down, I would call Bill Sims Jr. on the guitar. I said, Bill, come listen to this. And he would sit there and have his guitar, and, his, and he would be playing softly. He said, do that again, do that again. And I would do this monologue, you know, 1956, Lackawanna, New York, like all Great Lake cities was thriving, jobs everywhere, money everywhere, steel plants, railroads, grain bills, the docks. Everybody had a new car and a conch, and Bill would just start playing. Yes. And that's how that all started coming together. And then... How long? So, uh, by the way, let me just say, although George put twenty five hundred up, it is another example of a wise person saying something in your presence and you taking action. He said in your presence, write the thing. Yeah. Then he gave you a little money. Then you went and you wrote it. Because most people comment. wouldn't do it. Most people no, wouldn't have the guts to sit down in the room and try to write the well, thing. Well, the reason that that I hadn't written since college is because one of my other college teachers said to me after I wrote my first play, a little short play, and he said to me. I just want to say this to you very honestly. You should forget that you ever wrote anything. Throw this in your closet or put a match to it. You are not a writer. And I said, damn, I'm not a writer. I can't do Shakespeare. What am I doing? You know, then I said, no, nah, I don't believe you. Because every time I go home, everybody say, we're so proud of you. We're so proud. You're going to be a star, Junior. You're going to be a star. Well, okay, I think this is really an important point <laughs> for people. I mean, it's so moving to hear you say it, dude, because... Look, you're talking about an award-winning writer and someone who the lead actress in your show ends up winning an Emmy and a SAG Award and a Golden, and Globe, a Golden Globe Award. And NAACP Image Award. And the Image Award. <laughs> and you yourself are a Tony Award winner and as an actor. But this person looked at you and told you you didn't have the stuff. You should have saw how terrible the writing was, though, Brian. It but but there's one thing to say that the work isn't... So, so it's one thing to say hey, I don't think this is there yet, or I don't yet see it in this writing. But it's another thing to tell somebody, go hide this away and don't do this again. And the, and the thing is, experts are always wrong. These people are always looking to say no. But the job of the artist is to just keep finding a way to say yes. Well, you know, I found that script. You know, when, when my mom died, she had it. You mean the, the one that the you closet. wrote? Yeah, I have it. You know, it's handwritten. I have it with me. I'm, you know, I'm giving all my stuff to Binghamton, uh, the archive. Um, uh, but let me tell you the flip Wait, side. Is it terrible? It's bad. Because <laughs> I wasn't being honest. I was trying to tell my life and I wasn't being honest. I was trying to protect people. So that was the first time you tried to do it, but you tried to sort of elide instead of like you didn't lay in there. I didn't the want truth. to tell the truth, you know, because there were so many things I was ashamed of and I'm not ashamed of anymore. So how long did you not write for? 20, 25 years. But let me tell you this though, the flip side, there was another teacher who gave me, said, I want you to come in and do a monologue, either this monologue, that monologue, or that monologue. So I came in and I had written a monologue from my life, which turned out to be Lackawanna Blues. And when I got on stage and I didn't do one of the three monologues he asked me to do, I just did the monologue I wrote. And he started, we're, we're, we're great friends right now. He just sent me actually a, a gift last week. And I, and I said, why'd you send that, Don? He said, because we're friends. And I was thinking about you when I saw this Lackawanna brother. Anyway. I'd go up and I'd do my own thing. And he wrote me a letter two years ago and said, let me tell you something that changed my life. He said, I started to stop you and ask for you to leave my classroom because you didn't do what I asked. He said, and I realized this might have been one of the most special moments in my life to see this kid crying and sweating and spewing this passion about something that mattered to him. And he said, Reuben, you had this shirt on and the sleeves were too long and the button came loose, and the sleeves were flapping, and you were doing this thing. And he said, and I just stopped and said, i got to let him go. I've never seen anything like this. And he said, that moment, he said, I don't know if you realized it, 
That moment changed my life. This teacher said this to me. What a beautiful thing to write you. I got the letter. I'm telling what you. What a moving, amazing thing he, he, that you were able to do for this, like not even knowing you were given a gift to the But what if he was the, the other teacher? What if he was the other guy that said, shut up, stop. I didn't want to ask you to do. Yeah, be brutal. That's why you have to be really careful. We all do. As people ask me all the time, they want me to read their stuff and I can't read it. But also, I never want to be in a position to say, you can't do it. Your talent may not appear yet, but that doesn't mean you don't have the talent. You may not have the craft yet. But that doesn't mean that it's not buried within you if you'll work and work at it. I'm teaching kids all the time at yeah. universities. Uh, next week I'm at Princeton. I just did Juilliard. Uh, I'll go to Binghamton uh, next week. But, but the thing is, and I was at Morehouse about two months ago, how do you constructively encourage a person and get them on the path they need? Because everybody has some kind of talent. It's talent. It's not all equal. But I have to encourage them in a way and make sure that I protect them as well in the process. You know, because I don't want to destroy them. We don't know what that's going to turn out to be. The worth of that. It, that could be something to change the world. Yeah, it's about figuring out. I agree because I talk about this stuff all the time too. It's about like, um, you want I, for me, I, I, I want to try to encourage people not to calculate, not to try to calculate how the market might react, right? Or what buyer might want the script or the idea and to just try to connect with what makes them feel most alive. Well, it's funny because one time my manager said to me, well, you got to write something. Rube, you keep writing these things you want to write. Write something that we know we could sell because the market is asking for it. And I said, that's not how I write. I said, I'm not a writer for hire. Uh, I, at this point, I just write the things that matter to me. And so that's why I'm writing, I wrote Your Blues Ain't Sweet Like Mine, or I wrote Pants, or I wrote Lackawanna Blues, or the movie Love in the Driest Season, or the movie Vegas 55. They matter to me. And so those scripts, like, you know, Frank Wilger, my agent now, like he just sent somebody Vegas 55 about the first integrated casino in Las Vegas. He said the writer was like, who, who is this dude? And he says, right. it's Ruben. He's, I don't do many writing jobs because I don't, if I don't care, I'm not doing it. No, you have to, it has to really matter to you. So let's go back to, so you write, you start writing Lackawanna, you take it back from the Columbia person who's trying to clean up uh, the dialect and you finish it. Yeah. Do you have the sense that it, it's really, do you know, oh, I did it, this is good? No, no, I write all, I write this huge thing and George calls me into his, to his office again. George. And George, if, if, if when Ruben was saying, I don't know if I'm one of the top three, George is the top two or three theater directors in the world. Yeah, yeah, we, we yeah. George, I mean, he's acknowledged I just, I just spoke to him today. Yeah, I know, he's your good, doing dear, Iceman. dear friend. But uh, with, with Denzel, but the thing is, I walk in, he says, George, you know, they come to me, when you finish, George wants you in the office. So I come in, I was like, what's going on? And he's sitting on the floor in his, with no shoes on, just his socks, and around him, surrounded, are all these scenes. And he says... That you had written. Yeah, that, but I wrote it in one big fat lump. And he says, okay, okay, okay. There's a great play in here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> we have to figure out what story you're telling, what do we need to tell a story? And so we started piecing it together and through with the help of John Diaz, as I mentioned earlier, who was my dramaturg at the time, and George, we put together a linear uh, 84-minute li my life. And did you know it was a one-man show at the beginning when yes. you first wrote it? I didn't want you knew it was a one-man show. It's still a one-man show. You know, yes. I mean, we did the movie, but the play... I the play is a one-man... No, I'm saying you knew right from the beginning, I'm going to do all of this, and then... People are going to see I'm going to play what I can characters, do. However many I write, and Bill and I told Bill, you're going to sit on that stage and you're not going to get a break. So pee now because you're not leaving the stage until right. I finish all these words. Well, he was there with you. The whole, and he would play everything from classical, jazz, blues. Uh, he would just rough up, beat on it like a drum, uh, act like he was a dog on it. When when I'm when you were writing that. Did it feel manic to you? Like, oh my, it's finally happening. I'm finally doing it. No. Were you working in short bursts, long bursts? Like, what was your process? Short bur bursts most of the time because I would recall a moment and I would uh -huh. tell the moment. And I didn't know what moment went after. In the play, it's more linear. It's more the way my life happened. In the movie, we move things uh, uh, around. But uh, it was almost like a, a, a cleansing. It makes complete sense to me. How did it go from there to getting on the stage? George told me, Quit, stop writing. We got a date. We're going to open this thing up in May. And I'm like, George, uh, he said, just stop. You were done. He, he said, you're done. The, the thing's finally nailed. We did it. Yes, but I, I kept writing. 
Sure, of course. And I'm still, you know, messing with it a little bit. Maybe but, don't mess with it anymore. I think it works. It's pretty clearly that yeah, it but works. I haven't done it in 17 years, and I'm going to pull it back out now. And so when does it open, and what happens to your life when it opens? It opens, and people won't leave. And we're getting like two, three standing ovations. Just people just clapping. We leave the stage. We take a couple bows. We leave. They won't stop clapping. We're going down the stairs at the public from the Lewester. The stage managers come back, come back. We come back on stage. They're still clapping. And crying and, and reaching out, touching my pants. And I'm like, what the? How old were you when, when Lackawanna first went up? Were you 40? 30 in your 30s? It was, we're talking about now 2000, 1999, 2000. Right. So you were, you were like in your late ago. 30s. Yeah. I'm 61 now. So you're 41 or 42. Okay. So that's, that's amazing to me. So you're like a 40-year-old man, let's say, around 40. Yeah. When the really huge break, you'd been on television and all that stuff. Yeah. You'd made it by sort of whatever the standards of making it are. But then this changed everything in a way, didn't it? Well, all of a sudden, everybody wanted to talk to, who's this guy that wrote this film? Because, you know, Oprah's the first one that wanted to do it. But she had a deal with ABC. And I had had a uh, experience there that I wasn't very happy about at the time. And then I didn't want all these commercials to tell me what my mother said. I didn't want Chrysler and McDonald's to tell me what my mother said. I wanted to be honest. So uh, Todd Black over at Sony, he might even forgot it. I, I went in uh, to talk to Todd, and he was like, this is amazing, but it should not be on a network. It should be either a feature film or at HBO. And um, I went over. Colin Callender was there, and we, we, I, I pitched it, uh, and Todd called over there and said, you know, Oprah's going to do it, or I'm going to do it, or somebody's going to do it. Y'all should do it. And he probably has forgotten this by now. But uh, HBO just said, okay, somebody got to write it. You know, the play is fabulous. Your pitch is great. And then I said, I'm going to I'm gonna write it. And so my manager said, yeah, yeah, Ruben's going to write it. He's going to write it. He's going to write it. We got out to my, my manager's car. He said, can you write this? Ha. You ever wrote a film? <laughs> and I said, no. I said, but I can write this. You know, and uh, I took a couple writing classes with these, all the ex writing experts. And they were telling me everything I already knew. And I yeah, got that I'm not a big draft. believer in those supposed writing but experts. But I wanted to know that I was correct. Sure. And the things I thought and the way I was approaching it was correct. So uh, inevitably, uh, HBO uh, uh, decided to make a TV series out of it and asked for 13 episodes, but just to write the next one. Uh, Chris Albrecht got fired. All my stuff got canned. And uh, the Lackawanna Blues, the series, is now in the basement at um, HBO. But the one, the movie... The became movie a, had already been hit. Was it? We went to Sundance with the movie because it wasn't in competition. They're just going to show it at Sundance. Right. And then it premiered on HBO. I was so afraid because I said, where are we going to show it? They said, this huge theater. I said, oh my God, it's going to be a cavern. Nobody's going to be there. As the car pulls up with me and George and Pather in it, uh, I see a line outside and I say, when are they going to open the doors? The movie's going to start in five minutes. And they said, oh, the doors are open. That's the waiting line. Amazing. And I was like, what? When, we fin when the movie finished, we weren't supposed to talk. The audience stood up and started clapping, calling George and me, George and Robert. Blah, 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 blah. So they went and grabbed two microphones, and me and George came to the stage. Because George directed it, and George you wrote C. it. George C. Wolf. So we came to the stage. He didn't direct the play, though. Right. No, he produced the, the play. Record, I know. He produced the play and directed the movie. We come to the stage impromptu and have this long conversation. And somebody said, why isn't this a feature film? And I looked over at Colin because I said to him immediately going in, this should be a feature film amazing i mean it really is um it's such a moving story i mean from a rooming house to standing up on the stage at sundance with your movie blowing everybody's minds and answering questions is some journey and that's only really to, to 20 years ago i mean um we have to wrap it up but in a time since right now you're the a lead uh one of the two leads on a show called the quad on bet which is on bet in the second season you directed an episode yes i just directed uh, my episode was on air last tuesday that's fantastic. Congratulations. That's Great. a big deal. Thank you, man. It was it was a lot. Man, the Twitter was lit up. Facebook was lit up. Oh, my God. Was it satisfying to direct, to go and you know, do I, that? I end up loving it, man. It was like I didn't think I was going to love it. I've been resisting it forever. and I re Because I'm anal and meticulous, and I'm, I was so prepared. So everybody, when 100 people are standing looking at you at 530 in the morning, and you stand in the field, and you start saying, boom, 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 do this, that, 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 I need this. What do you think about that? Blah, 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 blah. And they were like, damn. Has it made you much more aware of sort of time and what everyone else is doing when you're acting? Uh, somewhat. 
what what I I had to realize what do I bring that other directors don't bring because everybody could tell you to put a seventy five yep. or a fifty on. I elevated, or I can take an actor and help them with their acting and understanding of uh, uh, where they're going with their character with the scene. I can help elevate your acting, and that's where I was valuable. I think. Yeah, of course. I mean, even as a scene partner, I've seen you do that. Just being in a scene with somebody, your level of preparation makes everybody just ready to go. So lastly, um, you have these two kids who are both terrific actors. How do you feel about them carrying on? They're coming from a very different situation, from a house with two loving and present parents. They were raised in a level of privilege you weren't raised in. You had a hunger. Their hunger may be to be artists, but it's a different kind of a hunger. It's different. I, I, how, I does, had how does it hit you? You know, I'm very proud of them. Uh, they both worked very, very hard. Uh, actually, uh, uh, they both had big auditions last week. While they're at university, they had to tape things for major networks. I'm like saying, you know how long it took me to get a major network? Yeah. But the thing is, I always tell them, you know, it's everything, your success is going to be determined by your preparation, how hard you work, and a little bit of luck. I said, but people are going to be curious about who you are. And so that name that you have, always represented very proudly, Never come in less than the best that you can give, and then the rest is not up to up to you. That's up to you. Never squander that opportunity. Perfectly said, and great advice for everybody. Um, Ruben Santiago Hudson, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being part of our show. Thank you. And uh, hey, Spike Lee, listen, put Ruben in one of your movies and come <laughs> on the podcast. You can uh, find Ruben. You're on. What are you on Twitter? If people want to tweet uh, at you, R Santiago Hudson. And you can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can write to me uh, at themomentbk at gmail.com. But do not send me a script. Um, do not send me a script because legally we cannot we read We can't read the script. So just don't send it. Unless you got an indemnity letter with it. <laughs> <laughs> Even then, save it. All right, everybody. Because we don't want to have to be the dream crushers. We don't want to have to tell you no. We want to tell you yes. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next time.